Well, uh, go ahead and open your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of Mark. We will be in chapter 11 today. And I love that God led Pedro and the team to lead us in this song, King of My Heart. I have a feeling that is a declaration that you need this morning. God is not just the king, but he is the king of me. He is the king of my heart. I hope you can say that this morning. And if you can't, we love you. And we're thankful that you're joining us for worship. And maybe you'll be one step closer after today to being able to say, ooh, maybe God should be the king of my life. I mean, we've seen this so many times uh, over the past 18 months, but I feel like I keep uh, just having to get my own heart in a space, and then uh, as a pastor, prepare to say, we've been in the midst of some really hard weeks. How many times have we said it? How many times have we felt it? And yet, here we are again. The last two weeks have been very, very hard. We know that COVID, because of the Delta variant, is ramping wreckage all over the world. Hospitals are filled and flooded, even in so many parts of our uh, largely vaccinated country. And uh, we're, we're seeing the effects of that. I had a friend this week message me, a 42-year-old friend of mine died this past week from COVID. And this is just even locally, we're, we're you know, encountering mask mandates and the need for masks again. And we as pastors are going to monitor that and have conversations this week as the city makes changes. And if we need to make modifications in our Sunday worship, then we'll be prepared to do that uh, as we have in the past. But then aside from COVID, you have Afghanistan. Can anyone see the images of what's happening there specifically as people are being airlifted on U.S. aircraft carriers uh, and, and people are literally trying to cling to the wheels just to say, if somehow I can hang on, it would be better for me to be out there than in here. Devastating. Devastating scenes. Tragic. And not only that, not only the oppression of the, the Taliban now ruling Afghanistan and all of the pieces of that that we don't have time to, to get into today, but then you have the country of Haiti, who just in the past two weeks has experienced an earthquake of 7.2 on the Richter scale that has taken at least 2,000 lives. We, sure, we, we are sure that it is much more people than that. And this is on top of their president being assassinated just weeks before. The world is hurting. We know that and we feel that. And that is why we need to sing songs like, God, you are the king. You are the king of my life. You're the king of my heart. And we need to encounter Passages. I mean, thank you, God, for the timing of how, you know, it's wild how you, you, you chart out a, a plan for your, your preaching schedule and, you know, and, and then all of a sudden on August 22nd, here we are. Here we are with a picture of Jesus 
our King. So if you would, wherever you are, follow along as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Mark pins these words now. When they drew near to Jerusalem, they, refers to Jesus and his disciples, when they drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat down. Verse eight, and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that had, they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the 12. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that in these moments, God, you would truly be the king of our hearts in such a way that we can tangibly say, I know the king. God, when we walk out of this building back into the probable reign, Lord, that we would be able to say, I met face to face with the king of everything and the king of me. And that king, the only king, the king of kings, he met me right where I am today. God, where people need comfort, would you bring comfort? Where people need conviction, Lord, would you bring us your conviction? Where people need a clearer vision, then we all need a clearer vision of you, God, then would you do it? Would you give it? We want to see Jesus, not for who we have sometimes made him out to be, but for who he is, has always been, and forever will be. Since you told us to ask for anything, this is what we ask for. In Jesus' name, amen. The point of today's sermon is simply this. It's no secret, Jesus is king. It's no secret, Jesus is king. So worship him, worship him. Wherever you are in your life, whatever is going on, all of the great things, all of the mess, 
this one fact is true. Jesus is king. And if he is the king, as we see here in Mark 11, then our only proper response is to worship him. That's why this sermon is titled, No More Secrets. No More Secrets. And if you've been journeying with Mark at all, and if you haven't, that's cool. I'll catch you up to speed. There are many, many times in the gospel of Mark where Jesus is having these conversations with people and you know, he does these miraculous things and he heals them and he helps lame people walk and he causes uh, people d- oppressed by uh, literally hundreds of demons to be healed and restored and in their right mind and in a, in, a, in a healthy frame of life. And he'll say to the lame person and the de- demon oppressed man who was healed, he'll say, shh, be quiet. Don't go telling everyone about this. Actually, if you fact check that, um, the first part is, I believe, true. The second part is not. Um, he didn't say that. To, now that I'm thinking back to Mark chapter 5, he didn't tell him, but he told many others, okay, many others. So I corrected myself there midstream. But the point is, over and over and over again, Jesus is telling people, hey, shh, don't, like, don't let people know who I am. Scholars call this the messianic secret, that, that Jesus did not want people to know too quickly that he is the Messiah because as we do, we get wrong ideas and impressions and we would have, as they would have, probably said, hey, if you're the king, then we're gonna make you king because you're here to deliver us from everything that oppresses us and we want you to do that and we want you to do it right now. And Jesus had a different plan. But now, as he's riding in to Jerusalem, actually, that would have been up to Jerusalem, uh, he, he uh, is, is now making it clear that he is the Messiah, the King. And we see this in at least four ways here in this passage. Just asking the question, what does this text teach us about Jesus? I want to give you four truths. The first one is this. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is in complete control. If, if we would have been journeying with Jesus and his disciples, we would know that the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was an arduous journey. Jericho sits 800 feet roughly below sea level. Jerusalem sits 3,000 feet above sea level. And as these people were coming in for the Passover festival, yes, a festival that celebrated their deliverance out of Egypt and Egyptian oppression and slavery, there would have been a fever pitch as they ascend to the Mount of Olives where they would get, yes, their first look on the majestic, glorious city of Jerusalem, the place where all of the festivals were held, and yes, the place of the temple, the center of Jewish worship where the very presence of God is represented in that place as the people made sacrifices and offerings to God in their worship and prayers and songs. And so for a traveler to finally make it up to the Mount of Olives, they would have been more than a little excited to think, hey, we are almost there. We have almost made it into the city. And so it's in this place that Jesus says to two of his disciples, hey, I need you to go into the next village, and there you're going to find a colt that is tied up. I need you to untie that colt and bring the colt to me. Now, this may seem a little odd, we see that Jesus says the cult would be one on which no one has ever sat. 
And scholars would tell us that this is probably an allusion to the, the purity of Jesus, that, that this is a, a young, less than one-year-old cult of a donkey, as John and, and Matthew would tell us. But, but then we also see that, that the Mishnah, which was an ancient Jewish writing, says that the king's horse cannot be ridden on by anyone except the king. So as early as Jesus saying, hey, you're going to go pick up this colt that no one ever has ever ridden on, he's saying, hey, that's fit for a king. <laughs> but then we get this other detail uh, where he says, hey, go in. People might ask you some questions, but it's all worked out. It's all taken care of. And we really can't tell, tell from the text if this is an instance of Jesus having supernatural knowledge where he just knows that there's a cult there and just tell them I need it. Or if this was pre-planned by Jesus who knew the owner and said, hey, when I come in on this last trip, when Passover occurs, I'm going to need your cult. Both are very possible here in the text, and that is actually interesting to ask the question, but it's not the point. The point of Jesus saying, hey, go get the cult, the cult in which no one's ever written because I'm going to write in on it. He is showing, hey, I am in complete control here. In other words, this is according to my plans and my purposes. My actions in this passion week are absolutely calculated. Jesus effectively here says, I know what I'm doing. I know what's about to happen. I know what I'm about to communicate by taking this colt and riding into Jerusalem. And I'm ready to go. You say, well, why is this so significant, Pastor Tanner? I mean, you know, like, well, you're going to get a lot of why it's so significant. But for starters, we know from last week's sermon and previous week's sermons that Jesus told everyone that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this calculation by Jesus to let everyone know that he's the Messiah is a calculation of his own death. And if that's not enough for you, three other times in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus foretold his death to his disciples. He said, I'm about to be, suffer at the hands of the priest in Jerusalem, and I want you to know in advance. So you won't be so surprised when it happens. It was his way of caring for his disciples. Do you, do you see here how this reveals, hey, Jesus knows what he's doing. He's in control. There's a plan, and I'm executing my plan and this is such good news for us when we feel like our lives and our world seem so out of control. If the last 18 months have taught us anything, it is that we are not in control. We're just not in control. Thank you, Walker, for the, 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 the golf claps down here on the front row. Okay, I'm glad someone's excited about Jesus being in control. Because listen, we, we know that even the best plans that we make, I mean, we don't even know what's happening this week. Or, like, and, and our plans just seem to crumble so often before our eyes. And yes, it's frustrating. And yes, it's discouraging. 
But that is precisely why we need a God whose plans never crumble. They never crumble. God has never once made a plan that wasn't executed, that did not come to pass. And so thank you, Jesus, that you are the king. You are in complete control, yes, of my life, but more importantly, of course, than my little life is that you are in control of everything. You are in control of this world, and you have a plan for it. And it may be ugly at times because of the brokenness of our hearts and the brokenness of sin that now has affected everything, including hurricanes and earthquakes and, and oppressive regimes. But God, you are still in control and you will have the final say. You will have the last word. You are king forever. Jesus is in complete control. But then number two, not only do we need a God, we need a God who is in complete control. But we also see that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. This this whole conversation, again, about, uh, hey, the, the, this cold is up ahead, and I need it, and it may make little sense to our just kind of modern ears. Especially, it's like a, a, a cold that's like yet less than a year old, and donkey, like, this is your plan, Jesus? But there are a few historical notes that we need to consider this morning. Kim Huat Tan points out that in ancient times when people made their way into the city of Jerusalem, guess how they traveled there? Not on animals, but on foot. This was the case for citizens of Israel. This was the case for visitors to Israel. This was even the case for nobility. This was due to the sacred nature of the city as the temple represented the dwelling place of God with his people. So listen, people did not ride into the city. They walked into the city. This is deliberate, provocative action on the part of Jesus. No more secrets. But added to that, let me ask you a question. Where else do we see Jesus on an animal in the Bible? Nowhere. Nowhere. So if, if something happens once and only once, we are probably leaning in the right direction that this is very significant and very intentional. But then if we zoomed out and said, hey, does this happen not just anywhere in the gospel, anywhere in Jesus' life, but anywhere else in the Bible... What's the answer to that question? And I've probably set you up for a bit of a trick question because the answer is not never. <laughs> it's once. In 1 Kings chapter 1, when Solomon was anointed and crowned as the king of Israel. Do you see how this is playing out? But then if, if that weren't all enough, then we have Zechariah chapter 9, when God spoke more than five centuries before Jesus came into the world through the prophet Zechariah, and he says this to his people, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your 
king is coming to you. And how is he coming? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. You can't convince me that Jesus does not know what he is doing when he tells two of his disciples, go get the colt. He is proclaiming to them and to the people and to everyone because news would travel fast over an action like this, setting up the week that was coming uh, over the next six, seven days leading to his crucifixion and resurrection, you can't tell me Jesus doesn't know. He is saying, I am the king. I am the promised king. You can't tell me Jesus isn't inviting the people. I hope you received this this morning, that he is inviting the people and you today rejoice greatly even in the midst of all the mess. In fact, because of all the mess, and when you see all the mess and you know who I am, that is really and surely ultimately your only reason to rejoice greatly is because the coming deliverer is here and he will have the final word. He is righteous and he is bringing salvation. So Jesus is in complete control. He is the promised king, but On top of that, as we began to see there in Zechariah chapter 9, he is also the humble king. Jesus is the humble king. I mean, I've read this story so many times before. I assume if you're anything like me, you're reading this and you're saying, donkey? Come on, donkey. Like, let me just let you into my life. I mean, this may not, I don't know if anyone's going to get this, but I'm going to be vulnerable and just put it out there, okay? Uh, In college, when uh, I was hanging out with my teammates and whatever, okay, the phrase we use when someone was acting foolish, acting a donkey. Acting, can I get a witness? Does anyone ever know that, like, has anyone ever said that? Okay, that was like a, a couple of people. Okay, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling seen and known, thank you. Okay, um, <laughs> I, I know this, that was just like probably for a short era of time, maybe 12 months, that was a popular phrase, maybe even only my basketball team, whatever, okay? But like, the point is like, donkeys aren't, super well-respected animals. Donkeys aren't majestic. I mean, when I'm reading this story, I'm saying, Jesus, why not, why not a chariot? If you're the king, and roll up in there on a chariot, Jesus, so that everyone knows you're the king. Or why not, a, why not the king's horse or, or a war horse or the greatest horse that anyone knows about in Israel? Why not, why not, Let that be your entry. By all appearances, there doesn't seem to be anything majestic about this kingly arrival. And yet, once again, as we saw in Zechariah 9, Jesus is the humble king, and there is something super majestic about that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and salvation is he humble and mounted on the back of a little colt donkey. 
Jesus is the humble king. Humility takes the posture of a servant. Humility puts other people before themselves. As my kids learn at their school, humility means laying down my life so that I can do things God's way. Jesus is the humble king, and we see that the life of Christ all throughout Scripture is marked by humility. I just want to press in on this for a moment. Did you know that Jesus wasn't always called Jesus? <laughs> Get a little theological here for a moment. Did you know that Jesus was not always called Jesus? I know I'm asking a lot of questions, hopefully making your mind hurt just a little bit. Uh, it's fun to do that sometimes in love. But there, there was a time when Jesus was not. Oh, Pastor Tanner's a heretic. Come on, Pastor Tanner, you're fine. Like, we gotta get rid of you. <laughs> there was a time when Jesus, the son of Mary, was not. Jesus was born into the world. But, I see you thinking, I love it. There was never a time when the son of God was not. God exists eternally. I know now we're really bending minds as Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entered time and space through a virgin named Mary and was born into the world. We can't get a greater picture of humility than this. The eternal son of God dwelling in eternal glory with eternal praise being lifted to his ears about himself now enters into our brokenness and takes on our weaknesses so that he can save us from our sin. Which leads us to theological point number two about the humility of Christ, not just the incarnation, but the crucifixion. This baby was born to die. Philippians chapter two puts it like this, when Paul encourages us to be humble like Jesus and he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It's yours already if you're in Christ, hallelujah, in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, that's when you look in the mirror, that's what Jesus looked felt when he, and saw when he looked in the mirror. And then it says this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The very son of God, the God who made everything in the world, who spoke all life into existence, who has given us life, died so that we might have life again. Once again, I would post to you, there is no greater picture. This is infinite humility. And oh, by the way, his humility doesn't stop there. What's Jesus doing right now? We read it in the book of Hebrews as a church together, right? He's ever living to make intercession for us. I don't know if many of you are into intercessory prayer. I hope you are as believers in Christ, and you, I know you are. You pray for people, and you, you lift them up before the throne of grace. And listen, that's, that's humble work. There's really not a lot of glory in that. 
I'm just going to take time not to pray for me, but I'm going to take the time to pray for the people around me. And Hebrews chapter 7 says that's what Jesus is doing right now. He's, he's our mediator. He's representing us before God the Father which is why I love, and I think we should give it up for our pre-service prayer team that's still praying before the service every morning since the pandemic started and since way before the pandemic. Listen, that's humble work to show up and to pray that God would move in our service, that he would move in the midst of our church. This is why we get together, I'll keep saying it, for fire nights once a month so that we can intercede for one another. And let me just put this out there, listen, I don't want anyone to ever say there's no opportunity to meet for me to be prayed for in the life of redemption hell. And I'm not, I'm not hearing that, by the way. So this isn't like, oh, someone said that, and now Pastor Tanner's going like to address it because I haven't, I haven't heard that. But this is a proactive statement. I never want anyone to say, hey, there's not space for me to be prayed for in our church. Why? Because every Sunday, if anyone needs prayer, we used to have a prayer team that prayed often. We always have pastors that are ready to stay as late as you need and we possibly can to pray for you. But then just so you know, every, every night at fire nights, we, we end pretty much on time. Sometimes always, you know. But, but then we, you'll hear us say, we'll stay as long as we need. If you need, whatever you need prayer about, we're here to pray with you, pray for you. intercession, the work of humility, and not to mention Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, completely, infinitely glorious, and yet taking on this humble posture. And yet, this humble king receives extravagant praise. This humble king receives extravagant praise. What is happening in verses 7 and 8 is that the people are essentially, as we would talk about in America with Hollywood and all these shows and the red carpet, okay, they are rolling out the red carpet of honor for Jesus. I mean, just think about practically what's going on here, okay? They're, they're, they're all walking in for a festival known as the Passover. They're there to celebrate. All of a sudden, they see the one who they think is maybe the Messiah get on this colt and start riding in, and they say, oh, it's time. It's, it's happening. It's happening before our eyes. How amazing would it have been to be there where you see Jesus on this less than one-year-old donkey's colt, and he's coming into the city, and they start shouting, Hosanna, and they and they they only have what they brought for the festival, which isn't much. So, so they, the only thing they know is like, hey, my cloak, like the, the kind of lightweight outer garment on my back, I'm going to take it off and I'm going to make a makeshift saddle for Jesus because he's the king. And then once that was taken care of, then other people are going to spread their cloaks on the dusty ancient road outside of Jerusalem. They're going to lay them down so this donkey can walk on it. My assumption is, is that the last time you went to J. Crew or Banana Republic or, you know, shopped online, H&M, wherever you shop, okay, you, you probably didn't want to take that coat and get it all jacked up. 
But this is, this is the moment. So they take their cloaks and they put it on the road because this was a, a, a symbol of honor and allegiance that we know who this is and we want to honor him in any way that we can. Yes, if we don't have a cloak to give, or even if we do have a cloak to give, we'll go out into the fields and we'll cut down some, some leafy branches, some call them palms. That's why this Sunday is known as Palm Sunday that we celebrate every year before Easter. Because once again, they're, they're, they're saying, hey, here's my king. He's rolling in. I honor him. I, 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 I want to give tribute to who he is. And so all of this was to honor the one, the, the promised king, the humble king, the king who is coming in as the coming deliverer. And that's the last truth that I want you to see about Jesus this morning. Jesus is not simply in complete control, nor is he only the promised king and the humble king, but Jesus is the coming deliverer. If there's any doubt to whether Jesus intended to end the messianic secret, I hope you're convinced from these verses. Jesus' disciples had already confessed him as the Christ. That's synonymous with Messiah, which is synonymous with coming deliverer. We see that in Mark chapter 8, 29. Jesus asked, who do you say I am? To his disciples and Peter, speaking for all of them, says you are the Christ. They believed Jesus was the Christ. But apparently they were not alone because the crowd goes wild when they see Jesus take this action. It says, I love how the text is so clear. It says in verse nine that those who went before him and those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna. In other words, this wasn't just like a little, you know, faction of people that were kind of like, yeah, we think Jesus is the one. But no, this was like, this was probably hundreds of people before and around. He, Jesus is surrounded. John says it's a large crowd. Luke says it's a whole multitude of people shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Which means what? We really need to understand this word to see what's happening here. The word Hosanna in its original intended meaning meant save us now. Save us now. If I can just jump there, I'm gonna jump there. We need more prayers that say save us now. Oh God, save us now. God, would you save them now? Would you save the women and children in Afghanistan, Lord? Would you save the missionaries now from what could be an impending death, God? Would you save them now? Would you save us out of all this mess? And thank you, Diane, for going down to Methadone Mile three times a week just to reach out to some addicts. Save them, God. Save them now. People riddled with anxiety, chronic anxiety. God, would you save them now? Would you bring healing and restoration? Whether that's through a, a trained counselor or a supernatural touch, God, would you save us now? We need your healing touch. We need your restoration. God, would you do it? Save us now. And oh, by the way, God is, God's completely cool when you pray like that. 
it's okay. It's okay to have a little emotion and passion in your prayer. This cry of Hosanna is an echo, and in fact, it's a, a complete uh, verbatim reference to Psalm 118, which the, the pilgrims journeying into Jerusalem would have prayed over and over and sang over and over in, in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 6, where they cry out, save us, save us, we pray, O oh Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. We hear the clear echo of verse 9, where they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's an exact quotation out of Psalm 118. And then they add to it, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Who was David? David was Israel's greatest king. What promise did God make to David that I will send a ruler from your line who will not be the king for a generation or two? No, he will be king forever. Jesus is that king. He's the Davidic king. He is the coming deliverer. But it's very interesting when we peer in closer to the text that that almost doesn't seem to be what they're saying here. It is, but it isn't. Because this shout, Hosanna, or as Jews would, Hoshanna, they would have probably at that point in Israel's history used it as a general liturgical term of praise. We praise you, God. This is why, if you doubt what I'm saying, just look at the last phrase, last sentence in verse 10, where it says, Hoshanna in the highest. In other words, it's, God, we praise you, and we praise you in the highest. We praise you with everything we have. We praise you above everything else in life. We praise you above every other so-called God. God, you are above all, and you deserve all the glory. Yes, when the angel showed up and proclaimed the Savior's birth in Luke chapter 2, what did they say? They said, glory in the highest. We praise you in the highest. And so what is it then? Is this, is this just praise Jesus for who he is? Or is this save Jesus because we need you? Yes. It's both. It's both. Both are happening. You can't read these verses and these shouts of acclamation of the coming deliverer riding in and not say both are not going on. No, both are going on. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, Hoshanna is a Hebrew word which mixes, I love this, exuberant praise to God with the prayer that God will save his people and do so right away. Right away. This is the story that these people were living as Jesus rides into Jerusalem and this is the story that we need today. Oh, Jesus, you are king and you are worthy of our praise. But Jesus, everything's not made perfect yet. And we need you to come. And we need you to come back and set everything right. We need perfect justice. We need love to define our relationships and bring us harmony. God, we need you to, to do the work that only you can do and save the friends that we've been praying for for years. God, would you bring them spiritual life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So listen, the, the text is so clear. The messianic secret is over. It's no secret. Jesus is king, therefore we should worship him. 
And so I want to invite Pedro and our team to, to come up and lead us in a song of response. But as they come, I want to give you just a few quick encouragements on what our lives can look like if Jesus is truly the king and our king. If Jesus is king and the call is to worship him, then, then what is our response? Let me give you four quick ways to hopefully worship this week, okay? Number one, because Jesus is king, we can worship him with confidence. Confidence. Listen, please lock in here just for the few final moments of this word today, okay? I don't, I know life is crazy and things seem out of control, but listen, because Jesus is in control and he reigns over everything, then we can worship him with confidence, we can live day by day. We can wake up tomorrow morning, August 23rd, with the vision of Jesus on his throne, and we don't have to worry about everything that's going to happen that day because no matter what happens that day, even if it's the worst day of our lives, it doesn't change the fact that he is in control and he is our confidence. Paul said we put no confidence in the flesh. We don't put confidence in ourselves. Our confidence is Christ. Our confidence is a person, and that person is God. God, help me wrap up this sermon. Because Jesus is king, number two, we worship him with complete devotion. Here it is. Listen, here it is. What did they do? They were on the road. They grabbed their cloaks. They grabbed the leafy branches. But listen, they did whatever they could do. God is so cool with that. Bring what you got, as one pastor said it, as we've been saying it for the past almost two years. Bring your best, just whatever you have, bring it to Jesus. And listen, it may not be much. You may not feel like it's much. You may feel distance from God in your relationship with him. But listen, just bring what you got. And here's the crazy thing about him. He'll give you some more to bring the next time. Yes, amen. And then how about just a little, yes, a little exuberant joy, a little exuberant joy. The picture of Mark 11 is this, no holding back, no holding back. This king that we've longed for for centuries is here. We're gonna go crazy. We're gonna lose our minds in the best possible way. We're gonna shout, thank you, Jesus. You are king. We're going to sing a little louder. We're going to act a little whatever. <laughs> it's, and listen, we say this often, it's exuberant joy. Can look, it will look different for all of us. God's made us different. We have different personalities and experiences and but here's the call, don't hold back, whatever, whatever that looks like for you. I can tell you, Pastor Tanner is 40-year-old Tanner, doesn't worship like I did as 30-year-old Tanner or 20-year-old Tanner or 10-year-old Tanner. I don't know what it's gonna be like at 80. I can't wait though. God, give me strength in my legs because I wanna still dance for you and shout and lift my hands because you are. Thank you, God. And here's the last one. Here's the last one. Yes, I'm so stinking sweaty up here today. It's hot as rip. 
but Jesus is worthy. So I'm not going to stop preaching except for the fact that I do want to get to the song because Jesus is king. Worship him with generosity. The call of this passage is generosity. You say, what, what, like, what generosity? What do you mean? I mean, it's not just for you. Pastor Reddy talked about a lifestyle of generosity, and that's not just finances. That's time. That's, that's everything. And most importantly, the most important thing, which is Jesus. So I can get the mission from any text in the Bible, and I try to often, as you know, but I can certainly get here from there because there from here. Because shouting implies, hey, you need to know. Why did the disciples go from dozens to hundreds to this multitude? Because people were shouting, other people needed to know. And, and not only that, this whole, as we've said, this whole, this whole moment is about people knowing the secret is over. The secret is so over that Luke would tell us when the Pharisees see what's going on and they didn't like Jesus. They didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. They wanted Jesus to be quiet. And so they, they tell Jesus, listen, they tell Jesus in Luke chapter 19, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. That's what they're saying. King Jesus says this. King Jesus says, if they're quiet, the very stones will cry out and say, I am the king. Oh God, I know COVID has caused our missional muscles to atrophy a bit. And I raise my hands and say, I am the first to say that is true of me. But God, this is too good of news to keep for myself. God, change us. God, change our church. God, change our city. Lord, we want everyone to know that this Christ is the King. So, Father, would you move our hearts? Would you move our hearts to see you as you are? God, would you move our hearts to, to love you as you have loved us? Because, God, last time I checked, you didn't hold anything back. Even when we didn't deserve it, God, you didn't hold back. And it's now our privilege to not hold back in return. So God, I don't know what that looks like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for, for most of my friends in the room and online, but God, you know, and you have sent your Holy Spirit to lead us. So God, would you bring life it, for anyone who has yet to say yes to Jesus. God, lead them to say, yes, Jesus is my King today for the first time here in the room or online. Just say, I want to begin this journey with Jesus as my King. But God, for all of us, that the Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us day by day to surrender however it is that you're leading us to live, to love the people around us and to bring you honor and praise. We ask for it in the matchless name of the King of Kings, King Jesus.